I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Randy, this experiment is designed to test your raw potential for psychic ability. Any questions before we begin? Yeah, Professor. uh, When do I get paid? Oh, wait. Did I just fail the test? (laughs) You'll get your coupon good for any $10 purchase at the Student Union Food Court at the end of the experiment. Sweet. Tater babies. Let's begin. I've written a thought on a card and sealed it in this envelope. I am going to now think that thought. If you think you can think of the thought I am thinking, say aloud what you think is that thought. Gotcha. Okay, uh, 35. It's not a number, Randy. I'm thinking a thought. Oh, um, sandwiches? A complete thought. Okay, uh, you're thinking, how come Whole Foods is allowed to sell half sandwiches? No. Okay, all right, I know. Uh, you're thinking if, if you could buy hummingbird milk, it'd probably be super expensive. No. Um, baby swallows should be called sips. No. Chewbacca has a mustache. No. He does, though. Shave everything but his lip. What's left? Think about it. Uh, No. All right, all right. You're thinking any man who says he's never peed in the sink is a freaking liar. No. All right, uh, how about this? If you love daiquiris, you should go someplace where the bartender's named Zachary. I bet they make a lot of daiquiris by mistake. No. Maybe there used to be a whole bunch of sexes when the battle of the sexes began, and now only two remain. We should call it a tie. No. All right. um, George Lopez must have had a testicle donor. It takes a lot of balls to divorce a woman who gave you a kidney. Okay, now it sounds like you're doing material. Wait, are those tweets? Okay, hey, hey, what's the deal with Gogurt, huh? What's the deal with... Time's up. Oh, all right. So what were you thinking? If you love daiquiris, you should go someplace where the bartender is named Zachary. But I said that one! Oh, you did? Ah, well, probably just lucky. You're not psychic. Takes one to know one, and I have genuine telepathic ability. Oh, yeah? Then what's going on in my mind? Hmm. There are voices, music, beer, clowns. We're dealing with a short attention span here and a lot of random synaptic flatulence. There's a name for this phenomenon. Actually, it's... It's... From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, we have a lot of bartenders named Zachary. Also some called Taka, Fragermeister, and Lamar Garita. It's Livewire, and now it's the host of Livewire who can read your mind, but thinks it's derivative, verbose, and could use editing, Courtney Hameister! Thanks so much for coming out, you guys. We have a really, really good show. We have a woman who might actually have some tips for the newly discovered bacteria on Saturn's moon. The author of A Householder's Guide to the Universe, Harriet Fassenfest, is here tonight. And the editor of the online magazine, The Rumpus, and author of the Adderall Diaries, Stephen Elliott, is with us. And our musical guest has just released their debut album on Glacial Pace Records. Mimicking Birds are here tonight. It's a great show. But first, I want you to meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Trisha Ferguson, 
the lovely Siren of Sound, Pachanowski. And as usual, Scott Poole, the author of The Cheap Seats, is joining us tonight. Here's what happens. Scott sits in our audience during the course of just a single hour, the amount of time it took Dorothy Parker to fill her bathtub with gin. Scott writes a poem that encompasses what he's learned over the course of the show. So welcome, Scott, and get writing. And we can't do any of it without our wonderful house band this month filling in. It's Jim Brunberg and the M-Chops. It left me wanting more. So uh, we're going to be talking to Stephen Elliott later, and his book, The Adderall Diaries, explores, among other things, addictions. And now I'm kind of a wuss, and uh, I've been mostly afraid to try drugs throughout my life. I did try pot once in high school, which led to an immediate trip to the hospital. (laughs) Yeah. It was for fear that, quote, my brain is going to stick this way. (laughs) So I am not a prime candidate for drug addiction. Um, I do, however, have a little problem uh, with just how much I enjoy food. And based on a recent NPR story, my addiction is more similar to a drug addiction than one might think. They reported on a Yale University finding that the brain responds to fatty or sweet foods very similarly to how it responds to say, cocaine, in the way that continued use can create what they call pleasure pathways, or for the overeater, let's call them hot cake highways, <laughs> that we just want to fill over and over again. Now, the way that they discovered this was that they took little baby mice and they fed them fatty foods from the time they were weaned until they were about 20 weeks old, at which time they had become obese, and I'm sure, adorable! <laughs> Can you imagine these giant... Well, do you remember Gus Gus from Cinderella? It's like this army of Gus Gusses, right? I mean, Gus Gus must have had a BMI of like 50. And he was... I mean, he was definitely the cutest one, so there's clearly like a totally different aesthetic among rodents than humans, like what's cute. Um... But I'm, I'm, I digress. The point is that the, that the mice had to keep eating more and more of these fatty foods in order to get the same amount of pleasure that they'd gotten before. So this is the exact same thing that happens with highly addictive drugs. So <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the holiday party season because for overeaters, it's essentially like a month-long black tar heroin binge. <laughs> um, and then it's followed by diet and half-assed workout season, which is like our version of rehab. Um, But those of you who don't have a problem yet are in luck because I think what the scientists are saying is, say, eating an entire fruitcake in your cubicle at the office holiday party to stave off boredom and the impending death of your dreams is fine (laughs) as long as you don't get your brain into the habit of it. So lucky you. Um, And we'll talk about habits later on in the show. But now moving on to our musical guest. They toured with Modest Mouse in early 2009, and on that tour, Modest Mouse frontman Isaac Brock liked the band so much that he decided to co-produce and release their debut album on his label, Glacial Pace Recordings. Here with songs from that beautiful self-titled debut, please welcome Mimicking Birds to Livewire. Conscious of ours With each and every breath Of fresh air Share this warfare But it's all over there So help them if you can And you should leave them if you can There will be more damage done now Turning around Surrender your guns, cause one nothing good's been done since when we learned to fly. 
Do you have anything in your pocket? Uh, no. No belt, no nothing. No belt, no nothing. Okay, sir, we're going to go over here, please. All right. Today we're going to be doing a standard pat-down, using my hand, going like this. Okay. Here we go. Mm. Sir, I'll now be doing a, uh, a groin check. I will place my hand on your hip, my other hand on your inner thigh, and slowly slide up till I touch the bottom of your torso. Got it. Okay, so I'm putting my right hand on your left hip. Mm. Uh, 
Excuse me? Uh, nothing. <clears throat> okay, I will now be moving my left hand up your inner thigh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sir. Uh, yes? What are you doing? I'm, I'm hypersensitive to touch, okay? Okay, sir, I'm doing my check. Be quiet. Uh, right, right, sorry. Okay, continuing where I left off, I am now checking the upper inner thigh and what... Oh, yeah, work it, work that. Sir, work it. sir? I can't help it. Supervisor! Yeah, is there a problem, Jerry? Yeah, I got a problem. This guy, this passenger is refusing to follow my instructions. I am following his instructions. I told you to be quiet. And he's making uh, sexy noises uh, when I'm conducting my groin check. I can't control it. Okay, so you need to be quiet during the search. Is that like a rule or something? Well, not technically, but it's, Im- it's implied, sort of. I'll try my best. All right, continuing with the search. I'm now putting my thumb and forefinger... F, yeah, do it. Oh, God. All right, do so it. you're posing a security risk. Oh, now you're talking dirty, huh, baby? Yeah. All right, you know what? Forget it. Take your bag, get to your gate. Enjoy your flight, sir. Thanks. Hey, uh, please don't tell my wife. And you know what? I am getting sick and tired of this. Oh, me too. Okay, move on through, ma'am. Okay, keep moving. Thank you. Wait, wait, wait. aren't you going to pat me down? Uh, no, you didn't beep there. But I'm, I'm wearing an underwire bra. TMI, ma'am, TMI. Okay, look, buddy. I haven't been on a date in, like, two years. I mean, I've tried Match.com, J-Date, even D&D chat rooms, and nothing! So... I see on the news, you know, that you guys are handing out gropings for the low price of a $200 ticket. And it's like, yeah, so you, sir, you are going to fondle me inappropriately. All right, uh, hey, Chuck, can you come deal with this lady? All right, lady, let's go. Wait, that's not groping. That's just grabbing my wrist. Come on, I sold my entire vintage cat food collection for this. Can I at least lick you? Oh, jeez. No more, please. Oh, no. What? It's that Norman guy, the guy who flies every day. Oh, great. Hi, Agent Doreen. Are you ready to pat me down? Uh, I gotta warn you, boss. The x-ray revealed some long stem roses in his, uh, person. Oh. Would you mind, Jerry? I'm, I'm trying to surprise my special lady. I'm not your special lady. It's okay, Jerry. I can handle Norman here. All right, I'll leave it to you. I, I didn't wear a kilt this time, Doreen. But don't, don't let that stop you from being thorough. Oh, thank you, terrorists. You're listening to Live Wire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we stimulate every part of your brain, including that unbelievably lazy section responsible for remembering where you put your keys. Coming up, author Harriet Fassenfest and Stephen Elliott and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. knows food. She's owned several restaurants. She has been a blogger on Culinate.com, and for years now, she's been what she calls a backyard food grower, gleaner, forager, and preserver. With her recent book, The Householder's Guide to the Universe, Harriet Fossenfest has taken up the banner of progressive homemaking and urban farming with a vengeance. She thinks the answers to our pervasive cultural problems might just be in the soil, in our homes, and more specifically, in our kitchens. With an excerpt from her book, please welcome Harriet Fossenfest to Livewire. (laughs) 
This is from the December chapter. It goes in the months of the year. And this is from the kitchen. There have been two times in my life when my cooking has led to a tradition. Not created a new one, but adopted one that was already there. The first happened in late December many years ago and was precipitated by a hankering for black-eyed peas and greens. There was no good reason to crave them. I had grown up in the North. What did a New York Jew know of greens, peas, and ham hocks? Not much. So I opened The Joy of Cooking, page 287, Hoppin' John. Eaten on New Year's Day, this dish is supposed to bring good luck. Funny, I was reading that on the last day of the year. I took it as an omen. I decided to soak some peas. For 25 years now, I've cooked Hoppin' John on New Year's Day. Whether for big extravaganzas or a quiet gathering of friends, it's become a tradition. The luck part? Well, after moving to the Deep South, I learned there was some controversy as to what part of that meal was supposed to bring luck, according to legend. Some said it was the peas and some said the greens. Some said it was the sheer good luck of having anything to eat in the first place, which made sense to me. Gratitude seems to have a surefire connection to luck. It makes what you have into what you love, or at least something you appreciate. A good policy on New Year's Day, or on any day for that matter. The second time, things took a little less direct route. I had been thinking about the mess we are in, about the economy, how it works, and how it doesn't. I was thinking about equity, and wondering how we would ever right the world. I was sitting in my backyard scribbling down my thoughts when the pear dropped. It dropped from the huge old tree in our backyard. It dropped like all the other pears had dropped over the years, one after another, over and over until each one found its resting place and fed the frantic orgy of fruit flies lured by the sweet sour fragrance of rotting fruit, vinegar, and neglect. Oh, we had made use of one or two of those pears in the past, but not many more than that. We ignored them as much as possible. Even though cr they created a stench, we weren't up for harvesting them, which is why I wondered, as I sat there writing, how I had taken it all for granted, why I imagined that a solution started anywhere other than in our own backyards, which, as it turned out, started the epiphany that started the gleaning that became the spirit behind and contributed the dried fruit to my traditional backyard fruitcake. Throughout the months that followed, I went around picking the neglected fruit of the neighborhood. I found apples to dry in rings and Italian plums to turn into prunes. That year, we harvested the backyard pears to dry and store in buckets. When November came around, I cut them into little pieces to mix up for a cake. I thought about Truman Capote and his Christmas memory, which was published in Mademoiselle in 1956. The story is set in 1930s and opens in the kitchen of a rambling house in a small rural town. An elderly woman stands by the kitchen window and proclaims, it's fruitcake weather. This delights her seven-year-old cousin and best friend Buddy, who narrates the tale. Together they collect pecans from a neighbor's orchard to crack by firelight. Together they bake loaves for the people who have been kind to them throughout the year. It's an endearing tale, and I love the idea of knowing by the chill in the air that the time has come for fruitcake. I, too, chop nuts, walnuts that we buy from a farmer. I add more than the recipe calls for. It was a good year. Baked in muffin trays, these little cakes emerge from the oven fragrant and dense. Cooled, each cake is wrapped in a piece of cheesecloth soaked with quince-flavored liqueur. I repeat the dousing every few weeks, and by Christmas they are stewed, now ready to be eaten, each one is wrapped in brown paper cut from a grocery sack tied off with a ribbon. Then the husband and I drop them off at friends' and neighbors' doorsteps. It is lovely that something as mocked as Christmas fruitcake can be snatched from the clutches of a debased holiday tradition and emerge as something perfectly right for the season, steeped in its logic and lusciousness. What I know now is that preserving fruitcake and liquor will allow it to be stored for years. Like wines, cured meats, or aged cheese, it will keep and be transmuted over time. And when it is made well, with ingredients that are neither green or Rudolph red, with local fruits that were taken to heart, nuts from the farmer that you have supported for years, and quince-infused brandy that you made the year before, 
fruitcake becomes something good enough to share with friends, family, and neighbors. Harriet Fossenfest. Thank you. Yeah, that was wonderful. Um, I wanted to just talk briefly about this, this word householder. And can you talk about it as it relates to homemaker and home economics? Uh, I read this essay by Wendell Berry, and he used the word householder, and I was very moved by it. But when I looked up the word, it was interesting because it comes from the Greek word uh, economics, and the original definition is to manage one's household, oikonomia, something is the Greek word. And that really resonated with me. And I thought homemaker was actually too constricted because it wasn't just the home. It was my relationship to the garden. It was my relationship to the soil. It was my relationship to the community, to the planet, to the earth household. Like home economics, but with a much larger net, mm-hmm. I, I like to say. Well, we're, we're moving close to January, and January is when people start to make changes in their lives. Is, is there anything that, people, that you're recommending that people can do in January to start moving toward this uh, well, well, the book to starts. natural lifestyle? Yes, sorry. Well, the book starts... Uh, in January, so it goes through an entire year. And the book starts with something called the personal inventory. So I make some suggestion about sitting and getting real with yourself about why you want to and, uh, and what you're going to give up to do it because you will give up some things. Um, the book goes through the, the months of the year and on each month there's kind of the kitchen, the garden, and the home. And January starts with personal inventories which is kind of what January is usually about. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good start. Yeah. So the book, it's A Householder's Guide to the Universe. Harriet Fassenfest, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. was Harriet Fassenfest, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. This last segment was not canned, but it will be preserved. Thanks to Whole Foods Market, who offer up all kinds of produce, meats, and other comestibles for you to bring home and put up. No, you put up. No, you put up. You put up first. I'm not going to put up till you put up. On the count of three, we'll both put up. Tyler. One. Just thank the nice people. Oh. Thanks, Whole Foods. Welcome back to Entertain News, because plain news is bad news. I'm Jamie Look at Me. And I'm Crotch Swanson. Before the commercial break, we asked you a trivia question about Mel Gibson. The answer was B, Nazi. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, remember when he was the hottest actor out there? Nope. How the mighty have fallen. Speaking of fallen, faces fall when you get old. <laughs> Tell me about it. My face, my butt, my boobs. Well, you are 28. And that's why the world of cosmetics has become a $19 billion a year industry. Interesting. Is it Jamie or is it deadly? We sent our correspondent, Laura Facemouth, out to visit a cosmetic testing facility in northern Idaho. What she discovers may make you queasy, so grab something to hork into. Seriously, folks, you might throw up. Over to you, Laura! Thank you, Jamie! Crotch. I'm here at the Overton Cosmetic Testing Facility at an undisclosed location in northern Idaho. I'm speaking with... Uh, please don't say my name, and okay. uh, also go ahead and blur my face. Oh, well, I'll just call you doctor. Uh, also too specific. Just, just call me man. Okay, man. Our viewers love to stay pretty. Clearly, you help make that possible. What exactly do you do here? Okay, well, there are new cosmetics hitting the shelves on a virtually daily basis, right? Totally. Well, when a new cosmetic is developed, we run a series of tests on that product to make sure it won't injure our customers. Oh, good. One time I burned my thigh with my curling iron. For instance, here is a new foundation from Maybelline that we just received today. So, if I worked here, I would just put that right on my face like this. Oh, no, no, don't do that. Oh, oh, oh my, ah, that burns. Okay, wow. Uh, so then, um, man, uh, th- this would be a product that you would clearly send back for further development. Yes. 
Oh, oh dear, this is, well, it feels um, spicy. Is that the word? Yeah, um, okay, and now my skin is really sticky. Uh, should that be happening? No. Okay, um, do you smell my face? <laughs> is that my face? That well, I normally smell? we don't test the cosmetics on our own faces. Oh, okay, I see. Well, then tell me this, man. Um, can you um, smell my face? <laughs> um, I can, yes. It, it smells like burnt Brussels sprouts. Okay, just gonna power through. <laughs> so, if you're not testing these items on yourselves, how do you test them? Well, on a variety of household pets. Your dogs, your cats, bunny rabbits, an occasional <laughs> snake. We've done ferrets. Uh, I once made an alpaca's face slide off with a bad batch of eyeliner. <laughs> and every once in a while, we'll use a guinea pig for the irony. Oh, you know. Okay, I think our viewers would love to see an example. Sure. Well, right over here, we have our kitten room. Now, as you can see... Oh, actually, I've gone blind in my left eye, but yes, sure. Well, as you can see in your remaining good eye, these scientists are cutting the hands, or paws, off of these kittens. Oh, yep. And it looks like the kitten paws are falling right into that Tron Legacy souvenir bucket. Boy, doesn't that look great. Are you excited about Tron? Oh, yeah. So, uh, what exactly is being tested here? Well, we are making sure that the Tron Legacy souvenir buckets will stand up to severed kitten paws. We also test promotional merchandise for Disney. So. Interesting. Very important work. I'm just wondering, how often does a Tron Legacy souvenir bucket come into contact with severed kitten paws? You would be surprised. Mm. And if you step over here, this is where we're testing the Tyra Banks fragrance, Ego by Tyra. On some bear cubs. Well, you know, it, it might be the agonizing pain I'm in, but it looks like you're just holding those bear cubs underwater until they drown. Until they almost drown. That's an important distinction. We don't want to get in any more trouble with PETA. And uh, that's not water. That's Ego by Tyra. We used to do the same with water, but then we lost that Dasani account. Well, thank you for this illuminating behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making consumer products safe for human beings. Can you call me an ambulance now? Back to you, Jamie and Crotch. Thanks, Laura. Make sure to get that eye fixed before December 17th so you can see Tron Legacy the way it was meant to be seen in 3D. I think I'm looking more forward to Yogi Bear in 3D. <laughs> oh, that does look great. Justin Timberlake is boo-boo. He is so talented, that guy. He really, really is. Before we leave tonight, we'll leave you with a fun fact to keep your brain a-thinking. The word Colgate in Spanish means go hang yourself. Sorry, Spain. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs> Our next guest is the editor of the online magazine The Rumpus. He's a featured writer for Esquire, The New York Times, and The Believer, and the author of seven books. His latest book, The Adderall Diaries, was called Genius by Vanity Fair and the San Francisco Chronicle. If you subscribe to the Daily Rumpus email, you get an email from Stephen a day, and we highly recommend it. It's like a little mini memoir, and in it he wrote the saddest story about the domestication of Peter Pan that you'll ever read. Please welcome Stephen Elliott to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're glad to have you. We actually, you were here on the show for Wordstock a couple of months ago, and we were such fans that uh, we begged you to come back. I love it when you beg. Yeah, I know. I enjoy begging, oddly. So the book is The Adderall Diaries. It's a memoir. It's an, a really interesting book because it is a memoir, but it's also organized as a true crime book. It's about a murder and the trial of Hans Reiser, who, well, may have killed his wife. You're not did. sure as you're reading no, he the book. Did. Yeah, but he did. <laughs> Spoiler alert! I didn't know that until I finished the book. Uh, it was in 48 hours. You know, I think, it's, oh, I think okay. it's out there. But you open up the book with the idea that you learned that your own father may have also killed a man. 
how did you find that information out, and well, what was your reaction to it? My father and I have a, a very strange history. You know, I mean, I left home when I was 13, and uh, while I was living on the streets, he moved. So then I was arrested, and uh, they asked, you know, where do your parents live? And I said, I don't know, and then I became a ward of the state. And then uh, we, didn't have, we didn't talk for a long time. And then we started trying to reconnect, and he sent me uh, his unpublished memoir. He was also a writer. He'd written a bunch of books. But he had this unfinished memoir, and he sent it to me, uh, which was strange because I have siblings in Chicago, but he wanted to send it, send it to San Francisco to his, his son, the writer, um, and, and it, it took a little while before I even read it, and then one day I, I, I read it, and then in this memoir, uh, he confesses to murdering someone who beat him up uh, the same year that I was born, and I knew that the beating occurred because I had seen the pictures, and I had heard about it many times. It was something that had, had weighed very heavily on him, and it was strange because he had actually beat up this man's son. So reading this, it, you know, you get the sense that he deserved to get beat up by this guy, but then he, in fact, went and murdered this person, and, and I spent a lot, I'd looked into it, I'd spent a lot of time looking into it. Yeah, uh, and what did you find out when you researched it? I found out that no murder quite like that had happened that year. I found a study that was done at the University of Michigan. There was no man shot with a shotgun while sitting in his car in Chicago in city limits uh, the year that he claims to have killed a man. So why do you think your father would have confessed to a crime that he didn't commit? Well, well it's interesting. Um, you know, why, why do people do such things? Uh, I think that it, he didn't fight back. And I think he was, my father is very macho. And so I think it was really hard for him to admit to a cowardice that I'm aware of because it runs in our family. So I'm like, oh, I know, I know what's happening here. Um, but uh, I think that was very hard for him because he's a very tough guy. Uh, and, and that was one thing. But the, the weird thing is, you know, eventually I, 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 do, I did confront him eventually and uh, thinking that we would get some kind of truth and instead he led me to believe that it might have actually happened, though not as he wrote it. Mm -hmm. So I still, don't, I still don't really know. I still don't really know, but it would be well within his character. He always had bail money. He, always, he often carried a gun, uh, and people that are, that are scared are, most likely to, are much more likely to commit violent crimes than people that are strong and confident. Interesting. What do you feel the reason was that you wanted to follow this case, this, this Hans Reiser case? Do you think it was in some way connected to your father and you know, this I, question? I had, I had writer's block for a while. I had not really written anything in a couple of years, and there's various reasons for that. One of them, though, I think was related to these issues of identity, uh, where I would be interviewed, and my father was denying all of my stories. So somebody would, I had written all these books set in group homes. They were novels, but they were very autobiographical. And my father would leave bad reviews of them on Amazon. He would call journalists. Uh, Hey, still, uh, but it's fine. I'm, I'm okay with so it. So he's essentially having a conversation with you through yes. reviews. And then also, if, if I was interviewed, he would contact the journalists and tell them I was lying. You know, the group homes weren't that bad, um, you know, and, and so forth. And, it, well, it was very interesting, you know, because uh, uh, ultimately, you know, I, I realized as, as for me to understand the story, you know, we've been locked in this this conflict for 25 years or something insane since I was very young. And, you know, it starts where we have different interpretations of the event, right? Like, I feel like I'm an abused kid sleeping on the streets, and then I, you know, identify as a group home kid. And he feels I'm a spoiled child who could have come home anytime he wanted to and, and didn't live up to his responsibilities. And what I in order for me to make sense of things, and you know, you start there, and then over time they move further apart, you know. And uh, so for me, it was essential not, it was not to convince him of my story, I, but I had to accept the truth of his story, that his story was true to him, and that to lie requires intent, you know. And, and then I started to make some headway uh, but that's where I started from. I started exploring these issues of identity, and I just started writing. I was, you know, I didn't care about publishing. I was just going back to writing for the reasons I'd always written, which was to express, to find out who I was, my place in the world. 
And right as I started doing that, and I started, I started taking Adderall again, which I had taken uh, for years previously, uh, so I just called it the Adderall Diaries. I was just keeping a diary. And then I get this phone call from a guy who I had helped with a magazine article on Hans Reiser. I helped him track down Hans Reiser's best friend, Sean Sturgeon. Now, Sean and I had uh, like three girlfriends in common, you know, using, the, <laughs> using the term various lo- very loosely, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, let it mean whatever you think it means. But, but he calls me... And he says, uh, your guy just confessed to eight and a half murders. So, Sean, so Hans Reiser, who is on trial for murdering his wife, and his, my friend is writing a magazine piece, and his best friend, with whom I have a myriad links, uh, has now confessed to all these murders. And my father has confessed to this murder in this memoir, and I've been looking into that for years. And I just started following it. Not sure what I was doing, you know, just following, not sure I was writing a book. And that's, uh, that's what happened. You know, truth is ultimately stranger than fiction. It's the kind of things, you know, you, you couldn't, if I were to write these things in a novel, it would just be like, oh, that's ridiculous. Right. You know. Well, and it, there's also this very easy juxtaposition in the book. This, it moves very easily back and forth between this discussion of this murder trial and your romantic relationships in the book. It's, and, and I found that really interesting because it, 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 it wasn't jarring in any way. It felt really natural. It, is there some connection for you between violence and love? I will say this. Uh, so I, I remember actually I'm writing the book and I'm thinking, you know, why, how come I never have a girlfriend? How come I'm never, how come there's no women in my life, you know? And then I'm, I'm rereading... That's no women, interesting. Yeah, and I'm rereading um, the book a... as I'm writing it, and I'm realizing, oh, <laughs> that's not true at all. There's lots of women. The prob- <laughs> I have a problem, and it's not that there's no women in my life. You know, it's something else. And you, and you see that. This is one of the benefits of, of, personal, of writing from personal experiences. You actually, you start to, you start to see your patterns, What's interesting, too, is that you write incredibly personal stuff about your relationships in the book, and you talk in the book about meeting women who have read all this stuff about you and want to date you. What is it like to begin a relationship where you're completely exposed, but you don't know anything about her? Well, I think that's, I mean, that's okay, because I feel like, for me, writing is a process of coming out of the closet. So it's like, if you're a transvestite, and that first time you put on a dress, you know, and that's that feels good, and then you go outside, and that feels good, and then you go dancing, and, and, and you're wearing a dress, and you can't remember all the times when, when wearing a dress was taking up your whole mind. And so for me, you know, if, if people that I meet have read my work, that's fine, because just, I'm just out of the closet with them. It's not, it's not that we have nothing to talk about, but it's, you know, we, can, we don't have to trip over things, like, oh, you're gay, oh, you're into bondage. Oh, you know, right. you're, you're, you've been pierced with, and you've overdosed on heroin, and you can skip all that because that's all pretty boring anyway. <laughs> you know. But don't you feel like in the beginning of all relationships there is a, there's a power dynamic, and part of that power dynamic is information and who has it and who doesn't, what you give up? If you're, if you're playing a game, I mean, I, I prefer just to be open and honest. I don't, I, don't, I, don't find that, I don't find that to be problematic. I do sometimes think it's odd, like you know, that someone would read this book and then think, oh, I'll date this guy, you know, yeah. because I doesn't, because I wouldn't. Date you? You wouldn't date you. Um, not Seems with like the information. Not, not with, with the information in clothes. Yeah, and, and it's not like, you know, a friend of mine said recently, it's like, oh, I just, I finally read your book and, you know, I'm so sorry, you were, I didn't realize you were such a mess during that time. And I was like, you know, that, that was not a time. You know, that was not a phase. This is, this, is, this is me. This book is still actually me, and I'm still this person, and I'm still that mess. It's, nothing has changed, you know? Sure, sure. I mean, some things have changed, but, not, but at mm-hmm. core, nothing's changed. Yeah. Well, and speaking of that, uh, James Franco just bought the rights to this book and is going to turn it into a movie. He's well, going to adapt it. You hope. Well, he's actually, uh, he, he, he bought the rights, and he was supposed to write and then direct, and then also star. And then I said, you know, would you mind if I wrote the screenplay? And he's, he, was like, he was like, really, man? Really? You would do that? Really? You know, because he's a very sweet guy. And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, I would definitely, definitely do that. So, uh, 
So I wrote the screenplay. The screenplay is written. I'm, I'm doing a little bit of polishing on it, but I've already handed it over to him, and so we're kind of moving. And I, and I will say that if the screenplay is not changed significantly, and of course it will be, but if it was not, that you would see James Franco fully naked uh, in, the, in the movie. Excellent. That's written in there. Uh, we, we appreciate you're writing that scene. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so does it end happily? Did you... It does. I mean, it, it's... Well, the thing is, you know, the movie, even though the, the book is true and I stand behind it, it's true as far as it's not factual because what is, you know, what, there's very few facts in the world. You know, this is a microphone. That's a fact. But facts are overwhelmed by interpretation and memory. But the screenplay is, is not true. You know, it's based on a true story, but... You know, it's really, there's a lot of fiction. I had, to, I had to condense characters. I had to pull things out because there's nowhere near as much room in a screenplay. A screenplay is just a, you know, just 10,000 words. It's really just a frame. It's really almost like a, a guide. Like here's, you know, the director and the actors then have to work from there. So it really, it's really fictional ultimately, you know. And, and, but once I realized that, you know, then, yeah, by the end of it, I'm living with someone, you know, a successful relationship. There's, you know... Uh, <laughs> You know, there's all these, uh, all these great, all these things. That, How does you know, that feel to be in a successful great. relationship? It's what I've always wanted. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe when you see it on screen, you'll be able to emulate it. Interesting. <laughs> I don't, you don't sound very hopeful. Well, it's been a total pleasure having you here. The, the book is The Adderall Diaries. It's a great book. Highly recommend you pick it up. Stephen Elliott, thanks so much for being with us. <laughs> was Stephen Elliott, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and you'll never have to download our show ever again. Think of all the time you'll save, but always remember, you'll never save enough time to make up for all the time advertisers have spent telling you you're going to save time. Get more information at livewireradio.org. Music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Good Seed Killer Light. You know how in the bad seed, that weird girl in the pigtails did all that mean stuff? Well, this is the opposite of that. Nothing but whole grains, omega-3s, and fiber. Man, that girl was weird. (laughs) Dave's Killer Bread. Just say no to bread on drugs. You're listening to Livewire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we're like a great date, but without the part where you're trying to discern from subtle cues whether or not we're going to break your heart into tiny little sobbing, bloody pieces. We'll be right back. gentlemen, once again, mimicking birds.
you. Thanks a lot. Mimicking birds. And now, as promised, the man who's been toiling away this entire hour. Please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that I don't know what I'm thinking. People are always asking me what I was thinking, especially when I wear the utility kilt. But I don't want to tell them what I was thinking because it's usually about them, and it's usually not good. I don't want to tell them I was imagining them milking a hummingbird because that could be awkward. <laughs> because then they would be imagining themselves milking a hummingbird and they would be thinking, do I have to tackle it to the ground and dig violently through its feathers to look for teats? Or will it just do that amazing hovering thing and I can just reach up and do that TSA underwire bra kind of reach up? <laughs> while it magically floats very still in front of me so I can harvest the tiny treasure of its maternal juices. <laughs> but then at that point, there would have to be this lengthy discussion of logistics, of what type of hummingbird, and do hummingbirds actually milk their young? <sighs> Let's face it, are we just mimicking birds at this point, shirking away our own special music? having flighty discussions like how only birds can count the human breasts in the air and only birds can know the number of our breasts and the small amount of our souls floating in them and how it's a bird's obligation to bring them back to Earth before they are lost in space where they form new stars like Alpha Centauri, for instance. You say something like that out loud to someone and they will totally kick your ass. <laughs> Especially if you're in the security line at the airport. Thank you, terrorists. Also, you can't just tell someone you're thinking about masticating, especially when presented with a herky, lurky fruitcake. You can't just tell them you're thinking about how you can put almost anything in a fruitcake, like pecans, pears, or pieces of Truman Capote, whose very name sounds like a really bad recipe, Truman Capote, the kind your grandma makes around the holidays that once you eat it makes you sprint to her bathroom, sit on the fuzzy covered toilet seat and rub a decorative soap the shape of a rosebud that was tested on Paula's kittens on your tongue until you just want to admit to a crime that you actually didn't commit, causing you to move suddenly, leaving your son on the street to write novels about you that you don't like and write bad reviews about you on Amazon. That would be bad to say out loud. That's when you tend to become a ward of the state. So when people ask me what I'm thinking, I've learned that I should just say, I forget. Thank you. Scott Poole, that's our show for tonight. Thanks for listening. to our guests tonight, Harriet Fossenfest, Stephen Elliott, and Mimicking Birds. Our house band was Jim Brumberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Jonathan Newsom. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Fitch & Associates, the Falcon Art Community, and Willamette Week. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you, fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Hotel Deluxe. Livewire is created and produced by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. Technical production by Jim Brumberg from Mississippi Studios. Recording engineering by Nalene Silva. House sound by Jeff Simmons. Thank you to Rose City Sound. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, performer Trisha Ferguson, and siren of sound Pat Janowski. Our guest writer this week was Ted Douglas. Livewire's house poet is Scott Poole. Production management by Drew Flint. Stage management by Stephen Alexander. Theme by Courtney Vondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Craft services by Whole Foods Market. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgamotion. Podcast consulting by Morley Studios. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. 
This is Tyler Hughes with a personal message to a certain TSA agent. I owe you a pat down. Coffee? Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.